I want you all to take special note to the superscription, which is the beginning of the psalm, or its heading. Harrison had already read 1 Samuel 21. Contemplate yourself as David, pretending to be mad, to save his own flesh. And then he writes this psalm. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear it and rejoice. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and the Lord hears, and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of the servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. There was a movie called Gettysburg, I think the late 1980s, at the most early 90s. There were, uh, I think Charlie Sheen, or his father, played uh, General Lee, and other famous actors. Uh, Ted Turner actually made the movie. The movie Gettysburg was, of course, about the Battle of Gettysburg, where... over 50,000 men died on both sides combined over a three-day battle. Just before the battle in the evening scene, the officers in the officers' camp were sitting around a campfire. And General Longstreet, who is the right-hand man to General Lee, is having a conversation with a British observer. Not unlike uh, in the uh, American Revolution, where the North wanted uh, France's help in the Revolutionary War, the Confederates were looking for help also from the Brits. And so in this conversation, right at a distinct moment, a young man 
off in the distance in the regular's camp, starts to sing a spiritual song. And he's singing, they both groan in relationship to the beauty of the song. And then the uh, British observer says, you know, I have observed that you southern men are quite religious. The response of General Longstreet was, well, all of us southerners like their preachers just a little mad. Today's sermon is on spiritual madness. I will use it in two ways. First, in its literal sense, in the context of 1 Samuel 21, in relationship to David trying to protect his life from King Achish and trying to get delivered because of his pretending of madness. I'll also use it metaphorically as the madness that we've all experienced in which David was fearful and feared men more than God. And I believe in this text, in 1 Samuel 21, he sinned. But we learn much from it. And certainly we, we, we could say that we learn much from his psalm in Psalm 34 in relationship to the aftermath of this act. And an act it is. I was going to say, I wish Larissa were here, I was going to say if Southerners are going to be a little mad in their preaching, what do the Southerners think about Northern preachers? So I don't know. You might think I'm mad at the end of this sermon. I may use the word a little bit too much. But it is spiritual madness to live in a very mad world. In fact, how many remember the movie the late 1960s? Sid Charisse was in it, I think. Uh, Spencer Tracy played one of the leads. It's a mad, 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 mad world. Anybody? Anybody? Right? Yeah, by the way, you all are older than you actually want to, that you're pretending to be. Thank you very much. So you are also a little mad yourself because you're not being honest about your age. The Bible is filled with madness. Mad schemes, mad divisions, mad theories, mad conspiracies, mad men, mad Jews, mad Gentiles, mad Romans, mad prophets, mad prophetesses, and so on. It's a mad, mad world. The world is filled with madness. I've used this text before of Solomon when he says, The heart of the sons of men is full of evil, and madness is in the heart while they live, and then they go to the dead. Madness is in the world. We would not expect David, though, to play the part of a madman. I mean, literally, a madman, scratching at the doors, acting and playing the part of one insane, drool dripping down his beard, and yet there it is in 1 Samuel 21 and also even the superscription of Psalm, 20, uh, Psalm 34. There it is. David, a redeemed sinner like you and I, acting mad. This is one of 14 Psalms where there's an actual historical event attached to it. And this Psalm literally speaks more of David's fear of men more than it does actually of the fear of God. And why do I say that? The fear of God is referenced four times rather than David's fears one time. But there is an exclamation point in relationship to when David speaks of his own fear when you connect it to the context of 1 Samuel 21. It is all about his experience. And so is in every single one of our own experience when we act mad with sin, 
I mean, don't you think, I mean, when I, I've been a Christian for a long time now, and when I sin, sometimes I want to, like, alright, stupid, insane thing to do. You knew better, right? It's madness. I'm a child of God, a beloved of God. Why do I act this way, right? That David was under stress is an understatement. He literally was fleeing from Saul, and his consolation prize is fleeing into the territory of the Philistines, which are long-time enemies of the Jews. So he's going from one enemy to another enemy. That's not safety. In fact, he could be, you could say, not even tried, but killed as a spy. That's his probably greatest worry. And therefore, in the presence of the king, he feigns madness or pretends madness. He has simply fled from one enemy to the next. And when he gets reprieve from the Philistine territory, where, in other words, his life is no longer at, at uh, risk and he leaves King Achish, he goes right back into the chase of, of Saul chasing him. So there is nothing really improving for David, you could say, in this race of evil against him. But it does seem kind of like that for us, isn't it? Foreign and domestic enemies, I think our Constitution says. One day you have friends who call you friends, and I've had this happen before, and the next day they're your enemy. And sometimes you don't even know the reason why, and the only conclusion that you can come to is that it's because I'm a Christian. It can happen that fast. Christians make enemies very easily. When you preach the gospel, you're preaching to the world that their worldview is wrong, and they are wrong in the most important things of life. No wonder they don't like us that well. And by the way, I am not at all saying to you not to love your enemies. I'm just stating a fact. This is life. We are pursued by the world in so many different ways. I've heard from so many of you. I've had my own experiences at work. Bad bosses, bad relationships at work, or whatever. Sometimes the treatment isn't fair, is it? The enemies are chasing you. Saul, sort of, is chasing you, you could say. An enemy of a man who just wants to be righteous in the presence of God. By the way, this transition of one time your neighbor being your friend and another time and in a moment in a twinkling of the eye, he now becoming your enemy has happened in the past. I mean, it happened with David. This is the text of which we are in. This is the context, the history of David. It happened in Germany during the Holocaust. It happened in Turkey during the Armenian persecution and uh, genocide. It happened with Joseph. Think of Joseph. Joseph was uh, first put in prison, but then he becomes a, a great attribute to the nation of Egypt and a friend of Pharaoh's. He dies, and over a period of time, Pharaoh's forget how God used Joseph. They, they were once friends with the Jews and no longer, and they're sent into slavery for 400 years. It can happen. It's happened in the past, and maybe even right now, it's happening right now in the present, in America. It's possible. I've experienced some of it. You have too. How would you react if you were placed into captivity? For David, it was a self-imposed captivity, fleeing from one enemy to the next. And yet, what does he do? You would think, 
Because remember, he's pre-anointed by Samuel. For all intents and purposes, God sees David as king now. Technically, Saul is still king. But from God's perspective, he is king. Do you think David's action before King Achish is the proper action of a royal? You think? I would say not. The question is, what does God say? In other words, is it proper for fear to get the best of you? And then, would God give you a get-out-of-jail-free card for acting in a way sinfully and at least protected you in your safety? Or would God rather have you suffer for what is good, as Peter said? For God finds pleasure in for suffering for what is good and not for suffering for what is wrong. And so we have a, you could say, a New Testament, New Covenant lens on how David should even be acting himself. This is a, a different psalm in the sense that after I got reading it, and then I read Matthew Henry, uh, and he even said what I was thinking. I said, if you actually were given ten psalms and said, pick one that is associated with David's experience in Gath, the city where he stood before King Achish, which one would you pick? I'll guarantee you, you would not pick this one compared to the other nine that were given as a choice for you. This just reads as an atypical Davidic psalm of praise and, and of God's tender loving care to us. I mean, the overall theme of the psalm is, by the way, if you want to taste to see that the Lord is good, if you taste to see that the Lord is good, you will see good days and have a long life in life. That's the overall theme. You would not think back, by the way, David just act like a madman in front of a pagan king, right? We just would not put the two together. Well, here's some of what the psalm speaks of in a categorical sense. Psalm 34 calls the believer to fear God more than men. Psalm 34 also calls us to a place of holiness. It also calls us to a place of praise. We see that in verses 1 through 6. It also is a teaching and encouraging psalm. We see in verse 11, he's literally preaching to children. Now, it also could be spiritual children, like David and you and I, but specifically children here. The psalm itself is used in corporate worship to be sung at the corporate assembly. And finally, it's for a good life. If you want a good, long life, listen to David. And there's going to be a place where you're going to have to say during the middle of this sermon, there's one thing I don't want to do that David did, and there's another thing I want to do that David said. And that's Psalm 34. What is remarkable, though, is there's a sense of normality of the psalm when his experience just before this or during this is so abnormal. Think of it. How many times have you sinned? I sin daily. Anybody else sin daily? I hope all hands would go up. At least in thought, right? How many times have you sinned? I mean, by the way, evangelists, and by the way, preachers, teachers, Sunday school teachers. You're, 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 you're out in the field and you're serving the Lord. You sinned. And by the way, you've got to do the Lord's work. And what do you do? You have to transition from a repentant believer to now a serving believer. And someone might say, well, 
you know, especially those of the world, by the way, the world's always watching you, well, that's a contradiction. For the believer, we have to look at it differently. We live in paradox and intention. And we will always live in paradox and tension. You will always be a sinner. You will always have the righteousness of God in you, of Christ in you, imputed to you. You own that righteousness. It is yours because God now sees you through Christ. And you are His righteousness. And therefore, you will do the work of the Lord worthily. You will serve Him worthily as a sinner. That's the paradox of our life. That's the realization of our life. You know that. But for David, it's really put here in black and white. It's almost like the movie is 1 Samuel 21, and then here's the narration after it. Here's Psalm 34. Don't take the whole picture of me. And by the way, I say this to the unsaved who's caught me in a sin. Don't take my whole life and wrap it up. Don't characterize me by 1 Samuel 21, when I feigned madness. I'm more than just 1 Samuel 21. David has a life before. David has a life after. And by the way, in Acts 13, it says when David fulfilled the purposes of God, he died. That's all our obituary. You do realize that, right? There is a sense of normality, and that's the beauty about it as well. David writes, even though he he fails and falls, so greatly, you could say he's an embarrassment to God in this one sense. But God understands a person preserving life. I don't know if I'd do anything differently than David. Would you? Would you? What is normal today, though, is now the new abnormal. David acted abnormally, and yet you could say Psalm 34 is the normal of David. Right? But in the world, the normal is now the abnormal. And the abnormal is now the new normal. Right? If anybody's over 50 years old, you know what I'm saying. We went, we went from uh, approximately 80 to 90% of Americans. Uh, it's a subjective statistic, but I've heard it in the past. If you, did a, if you looked at the statistics of 1970s, the majority of Americans believe homosexuality was a sin. And now we're asking five-year-old children whether they want to be homosexual. That's a paradigm shift, a moral paradigm shift. This is the abnormal now becoming the new normal. This is the imbecility of sin. This is the madness of sin, this transition. It is madness. Isaiah said, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who make light into darkness and darkness into light. It's the day we live in. You see, though, we are also warned not to be like that. Light, darkness, darkness, light. We're always to be light, aren't we? Being abnormal as a Christian, because the world is evil, is a good thing. David's madness is not what God expects of him. And it's not a good thing. It could be argued that in verse 1, when David says, I will extol the Lord at all times, he's just not being sincere. But I believe that this text is showing what David's heart really is at after he comes to his senses. His situation is understandable. But did his fear 
get the best of him. When David prays, verse 4, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. All my fears? So when we sin, because fear causes us to sin, it's, you could say it's the, it's the impetus for the sin. We do things we don't expect of ourselves. We do things that are character of ourselves. But does that mean God is not still the same God who says, I will deliver you from all your fears? Just because I feared and sinned one time? This is the paradox of the Christian life. I believe God. He will deliver me from all my fears. And yes, if I sin, I still believe that. I still do. We should never act differently in the presence of evil. What's interesting here is David had really no excuse to act in the manner that he did. He was carrying Goliath's sword just before in the text in chapter 21 of 1 Samuel. He's carrying, he says, do you have a sword to the priest? And he says, well, I have the sword that came from Goliath. Now, if David could ever just recall, and this is why I believe that being a Christian over a longer period of time in general is of such great benefit, and we try to give our wisdom back to the younger because they haven't lived through those years of trouble, well, we look back and say, God has preserved me then and there. I remember that moment. Do you remember conscience? I speak to my own soul, Psalm 45. I counsel my own self and I say, Soul, do you remember how good God was and how He shepherded you through those troubled times? And I remember the sword of David and the giants that fell before him and the lack of fear that was present with him. Oh, fear, run away from me. You have no place with me because I have my beloved God with me. Is that not how we counsel our own souls? Ephesians 5, 8-12 says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. Everything exposed by the light becomes visible. Brothers and sisters, our job as Christians is to expose evil. Not cloud or shroud who I am, although King Achish knew who David was. He did not probably know that he was anointed, pre-anointed as king, though. Because he probably would have died at that moment. We should never, ever do evil when we're supposed to be exposing it. That's our job as a Christian. That's our spiritual responsibility. By the way, here's the trouble with that. Whenever you expose evil, you're exposed. Right? This is... This is the difficulty of being a Christian in a, in a more paganizing world today. Oh, you're one of them? Right? You're one of them? Those, well, I've been called by, I've been called a Jesus freak before. Anybody else been called a Jesus freak before? Yeah, I didn't see Jesus freak. You're one of them? Now, by the way, if you want to be an evangelist, and, and I, 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 in every church, by trade, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a, a preacher and an elder. I'm an evangelist and an encourager. Those are my biggest gifts. And I run into more and more people about evangelism and their fear of evangelism. You just have to get off this very subtle ego trip. I'm sorry, I've got to put it this plain, of fear 
entering in with your human ego that says, well, if I say this, then this. Automatically recognize when you start preaching the gospel, you're exposed. Especially if you start preaching it biblically. I was preaching the gospel to a teacher down at the Mohawk Mountain Resort down in New York one time. And, and I was sitting by a fire, a beautiful fire in the wintertime. And I start preaching the gospel to her. And I started getting pretty into the preaching too a little bit. And, you know, I was getting a little bit more specific. And other times not to specific, but this time very specific. And she says, I think that's fire and brimstone preaching. Quote, unquote. Oh, the gig's up. I'm exposed, right? Hold that as a badge of honor, Christian. You don't want to hide in your sin. You want to be bold in the righteousness of Christ and proclaiming the kingdom of God. And no cost, no cost is greater than preaching Christ and Him crucified. It's interesting, and this is what life is all about. Well, David says, by the way, I will glory in the Lord, glorify the Lord with me. He's glorying in, not in what he did, but glorying in the fact that his fear has been relieved and God has delivered him. And if you read 1 Samuel 21, read it with 1 Samuel 22, verse 1. And there's a matter-of-fact transition going on there. He feigns or pretends to be mad, and then David goes to the cave of Adjulin. One day we're dealing with the madness of sin. Next day we're into another trouble. That's life. That is life for the Christian. Just another day at the office, you could say, for all of us. David says, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. And the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. Did David forget that God's angels were camped around him when he was... Fearful in front of Achish. Absolutely. There's a little shame probably in David as he's writing with pen on that vellum, right? Fear is abnormal to the Christian redeemed. Faith is normal, sisters and brothers. Because see, and when I say that, that doesn't mean that being sin is abnormal. But when God converted you, He created within you a new normal. The abnormal of your enjoyment of the pleasures of sin is gone. And the new normal is loving righteousness and hating your sin. John Owen says, you can't be successful in life. I'm paraphrasing here. You can't be successful in life, nor can you defeat sin, if you do not hate sin. It's as simple as that. You ever get mad at yourself? If you don't, When you sin, you ever get mad at yourself in the presence of God in your prayers? If you don't, you should. Many Christians fear and worry too much. I am one of them. And don't seek the Lord enough. I know one thing, my fear and my worry causes me to seek the Lord all the time. What's interesting, though, is when the Lord sees and looks at us as if... When the world looks at us, they either look at us in two ways. Either as a mad man, like David. They see the contradiction. You proclaimed Christ, right? You proclaimed the gospel. You try to live the gospel. Do you think the world would ever remember 20 of your righteous deeds over one sin? Never happens, does it? 
never, ever, ever happens. So they see contradiction. They say hypocrite. They remember the mad man. Or they remember the mad king. Holiness and righteousness and humility following after they sin. I have, by the way, have you ever repented? Not just your initial conversion. Have you ever repented in front of an unbeliever and asking their forgiveness that you sinned in their presence? Have you? Have you? You've been a Christian long enough. You should have already by now. Better to fear God than man, Jesus says. Man can only take the body, but God can take both body and soul. That's an impetus, by the way, for all of us to become evangelists and also to avoid sin. In the 16th century, I read a book on Luther, another one um, by Eric Metaxas. Eric Metaxas, he's the one who did Bonhoeffer. Um, Very much more in-depth. And uh, during the 16th century, um, if you were found as a heretic, the church would burn you at the stake. A horrible death. Read uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs. You'll see the first-hand accounts of that. On the other hand, if you recanted, which would be basically saying, now I'm going to detract all of what I've said from a, a faithful perspective, then I can be drowned. Put in a bag and drown. That's the mercy of the church, by the way, in the 16th century. What Jesus is saying to you and I, don't fear man. Whether he drowns you or burns you at the stake, be faithful. Be the witness. Don't be the madman. Be the witness and the light in the presence of evil men. Overcome evil with good, Paul says to the Ephesians. So David is teaching us how to see good days. Not as a madman, but as a man who's learned, I think, from the experience of his own sinful madness. Peter quotes what David says when he uses the phrase good days in verse 12. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Many times we will have to run from sin before we confront it. Other times we must confront sin and then run from it. In either case, you are blessed, Jesus says, and Peter says. Don't you think that the Beatitudes says much about what our character should be in the presence of our enemies? Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek. This is not just in the presence of those who you know in the church but in the presence of the world. David says, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous in Psalm 34. The spiritually successful life is not a life without sin, but it is a spiritually successful life because of God's righteousness, because He is encamped around us, and because we find shelter under His wings, because He loves us and cares for us. He is a God who is shepherding our souls, Peter says. My own personal struggles with sin, though, and spiritual madness it brings must be endured by hating my sin. It has to be that way. David also says in verse 19, A righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. 
He uses that phrase often, by the way. All the time, always, from them all. Well, either one of two things. Either David is unrealistic, or there's something about God that is beautiful. He is realistic. He is a sinner. And God is that great to deliver you from them all. Where we fall short is we become fearful, worrisome, impatient, and we move before God moves. That's what we do. It's one of the reasons why the world that we are living in is an existential world, a world driven by human experience. And human experience, outside of the realm of human rationality, is trouble and madness. And it brings the madness of sin. When you read back in First uh, Samuel 21, the word, the Hebrew word there used is countenance. His madness changed David's countenance. Literally, the meaning of that word is, David went from a rational man to an irrational man. God does not want that from any of us. Submitting to your experiences, your fears, your emotions will make you a irrational person. Renew the spirit of the mind which is created in the holiness and righteousness of Christ. It is a mental exercise first as a Christian become, before it becomes a spiritual exercise. The spirit of a man is informed by the spirit of God through the words of God. That's how you mature in the faith. That's how you become successful. That's how you live good and successful days. When you taste of the Lord and you like the taste and it's sweet as honey in your bowl, in your belly, in your bowels. And yet we even have still when John says, I tasted of it and it was sweet and then it became bitter. When John tasted the Word of God, the sweetness is, it is the Word of God. But the trouble of the world that comes upon us and the trouble that is increased because of the Word of God in us is bitter, is it not? That's the paradox of life. I want to know more of Christ. I want to receive the Word of God more of Christ. I want it to be engrafted within me as if it were a plant grafted because it becomes in union with God. And by doing so, I'm one with Christ. And you know what? You're exposed then. The world knows who you are. They know where you're at. They're going to falsely characterize you. And they're going to call you mad. 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 Well, the best we can hope for in this life, and it is the best we can hope for, is the experience of Elijah. After a troublesome time, a severe drought, God gives him a tree for shade, a book, a brook for sustenance, and bread by a raven. And then after a certain period of time of rest, what did God do? Withers the tree, dries up the brook, and stops the food from coming. And now you've got to get busy serving the Lord. That's our life. At the best we can expect from this world in our Christian life is reprieve. That's all. Momentary reprieves of trouble, reprieve, trouble. And that's okay. Would you expect anything different 
If we did, we would be saying, my life is a little life better than Jesus' life. Because was not his life a life of suffering and of tribulation? That's why I don't have any patience for the prosperity gospel. There's a different prosperity in a Reformed church than there is in a charismatic church. I'll just tell you that right now. One has a Cadillac in a driveway. The other one has peace, even though you're suffering. That's the difference. This week, you may be called a bigot. Next week, you may lose your job for witnessing the gospel. Are you prepared? Are you ready? Are you ready? David says, The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. Do you believe that? Because that's your sustenance when you go to work, and you've got the world's worst sadistic boss. I say that by experience. I had one for six years. When in the presence of evil, we feel like madmen. There's this contradiction. I hate sin. The sin still is tempting. I must overcome it. It's the thing that uh, God said to Cain, right? Sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you. And you must master it. What did Jesus do in the greatest temptation? Surrounded by evil, like David. Surrounded by it. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? One thing I missed, and do you see the faith in that statement? Trouble. The very wrath of God bearing down on Christ. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The statement of faith is found in my God and my God. Even when the wrath of God of the Father was upon the eternal Son, at that very moment, Jesus never forgot that He was His God. And if evil surrounds you, you must never forget as well. David's surrounded by evil. Jesus was surrounded by evil. We're feeling more and more in this culture being surrounded by evil, aren't we? We must see what David sees. We must see what Christ sees. David says the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. This is, if I were to suggest to you, this is the most important ingredient in a successful Christian life. That is a brokenheartedness, a poorness of spirit, a contrite spirit, a humility, willing to partake with the same humiliations as Christ partook. The boastful pride of life in a Christian will not, as, will not give you a good quality life compared to a humble Christian who walks in the same footsteps of Christ. He's close to the brokenhearted, David says. Crushed and broken, David was, pursued by one he once loved, forsaken by God was his thought, rescued by grace before he was caught. David says to you and I, this poor man called, and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. Ooh, the ugliness of David's madness of sin in the presence of King Achish. And now he cries out, this poor man needs God. There is a rationality, by the way, here of David, even in the context of the irrationality of his madness. 
We see it in his statement, evil will slay the wicked in verse 21. Well, we say, how could evil slay the wicked? Even Jesus brings up this whole, you could say, almost philosophical doctrinal concept. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How shall his kingdom stand? He says, and also Matthew 12 again, he says, how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? You see, the madness about sin is this. It corrupts, it destroys. The boastful men of the unsaved who boast in their sin eventually will be destroyed by it. There was a uh, young man who threatened to kill me two or three times one late evening. Joyce will attest to this. He jumped out of a car. He was badly injured and his brother was trying to console him and he was bleeding all down his face. And I showed the mag, light on, the mag light on him at nighttime right by my mailbox. He threatens to kill me multiple times, comes towards me. And I was not ungrateful that the deer fence was on and 8,000 volts proceeded to shock him, put him in his place a little bit. But that young man who threatened to kill me within a year also lost his leg in a motorcycle accident. I can't help but think the madness of sin beget more madness in this young man. And he received the fruits of his labors a year later. Madness. Men are destroyed by their own selves, their own sin, and sometimes by other evil men who are evil and mad themselves. Madness begetting madness and killing madness, killing others. We may have many troubles because we are Christians, but God delivers us from them all. The world may seem to have fewer troubles, but they will never be delivered from hell. The madness and the sin of men is that they seek after sin's pleasure and they trade it off for hell. And that's a mad scheme. There are no good days for the wicked. I will tell you that right now. There are no good days for the wicked. If you are unsaved here, ask yourself, are you regularly in trouble with God due to your sin? Are you enslaved by your sin and is your willpower too, too weak to overcome it? Does your conscience convict you of your sin? Do you selfishly hurt others because of your sin? And finally, do you hurt yourself because you love to sin? Do you? May I say to any unbeliever here who has heard that, you are mad because sin will always do one thing. It will lead you to death. It always does. It has a 100% fatality rate. Madness. It's a mad, 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 mad world we live in. How will you live, dear Christian, in this mad world? How will you live? Will you live, as David does, succumbing to his emotions and his fears? And in a moment of madness, pretends to be mad in front of all his men, in front of the living God, even in front of his enemies. Shame on him. But I can't really say shame on him with any pride, because I'm no different than David every time I sin one sin in madness. But if we see God on his throne, 
at the right hand of the Father, who has overcome the madness of the world. And yes, even all of your troubles. In the world you have tribulation, but behold, I have overcome the world. You are no longer living in madness, but you're living in hope. The hope of the resurrection, where at the end of the day, in our resurrected bodies, we will see in real living color what David already sees as a prophet of God in Psalm 34. God delivers us all from our troubles. All of them. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Sin, Satan, and the world are killing you, unbeliever. But I just can't leave that with the believer, unbeliever. Because some believers here may be having a besetting, experiencing a besetting sin in the struggle with it. And you feel like you're being killed by those three demons. Christ is sufficient. His Holy Spirit abides within you. And He can give you the strength to overcome your troubles. A life wasted for my sin in me, Satan's promise I will never see. Taste and see the Lord is good. Enter into thy brotherhood. Refreshing springs your life will be. Follow Christ from Calvary. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we worship you as the God who delivered us from all troubles. And yes, Lord, forgive us of the moments of madness in our life. Help us, O Lord, to live in the paradox of being sinners and yet hidden in Christ and being filled with the righteousness of God and called to a higher calling. And give us the strength to do so, O Lord, by the very power of God who abides within us. We can do nothing without Christ. We will fall immediately and back into the madness of sin once we trust in ourselves. O Father in heaven, deliver us through your only begotten Son and through His Holy Spirit who dwells within us, that we would live victoriously and be the light in the world that exposes evil and sin and the madness of it. Would you do this for us, Lord, that we would be overcomers and victors for the glory of your namesake. Amen.